we're continuing, uh, this will be our second sermon on Pentecost. And what we're doing in this series on Pentecost is something where the idea is you get so familiar at looking at something in one, one view, and we're trying to specifically look at Pentecost and see it from all of the different views. We won't actually hit all the views, obviously. But the idea is, is we're trying to uh, open up Scripture and see how by looking at Pentecost and recognizing all the different facets of how it's, it's a fulfillment of Scripture, it gives us more understanding of who we are and what we're called to. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that we can come here together. Lord, I thank you for already how you've been speaking and moving in the service. Lord, I pray that that continues as we, we go forward, that um, your, your words would be spoken here, that you prepare us as we, we listen and we, we learn together. In your name, amen. So last week, just quick recap. We looked at the idea, the fact that um, we are set up in Genesis 1 with humanity and they are given this massive calling of the image of God. Genesis 2 tells us that humanity is not only that, but they're the place where God's breath and creation overlap. Genesis 3 then leads us to the fact that there's a, there's a fall. And in that fall, we actually see a spiritual death a separation of God, from God's, God's very presence that needs to be resolved. And so we're looking for how will that be resolved? And then we looked at the idea, the fact that there are actually false ways that that could be resolved. We looked at Genesis 6, felt extremely uncomfortable with that, and looked at how that is not a solution to the problem. We looked at demonic possession as another way that doesn't solve the problem it actually creates more problems than, it's, than it solves, right? And so there's the only one way that this problem is solved, and that's through God's Spirit being poured out on humanity, making humanity into who they were designed to be, to be fully human, is to be the place where God's Spirit and creation are put together. So that's where we sort of were last week. I want to look at it this week from a completely different perspective. So, as we look at Jesus, we see the fact that he is the fulfillment of scripture. And so he becomes the greater of so many things. He becomes a greater David, a greater Elijah, a greater Elisha. He's all of these things that we look to and go, we saw a template before, but we see the truer and greater version in him. And so in the same way, as we look at different aspects of this, we can consider, for instance, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are really are le- unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Jesus is our Passover lamb. And so again, we see another aspect of who Christ is by recognizing all of these facets, just in the same we're going to do with Pentecost. Matthew, as we looked at last year when we sort of preached through the book of Matthew, we recognize that Matthew is doing a lot in his book. But one of the things he's doing is showing that Jesus is the new and greater Moses. And we see this in a variety of different ways. He just doesn't come out and say, by the way, he's Moses. He shows us through actually telling the story of of Jesus in his life. So just as the Torah has the first five books of the Bible, in the same way, the first uh, Matthew has Jesus with five major teachings as we go through the book each of those corresponding to the first five books of the Bible. 
just as Moses received the Torah on Mount Sinai, so Jesus' first and greatest discourse, Matthew 5 through 7, is delivered on a mountain and known as Sermon on the Mount. So again, we see these, these, these different aspects of where Jesus is starting to look that way. And then if you even just, just read the story of Matthew and just start paying attention to things, Jesus has to flee from Herod because he's trying to kill all of the, the children under the age of two. Sounds very sim- similar to somebody else that we recognize. In the same way, Jesus crosses the Jordan and goes into the wilderness for 40 days. In the same way that Israel is led through the Red Sea and wanders the, the wilderness for 40 years. And so Jesus continues to be these different aspects that we see of a new and greater Moses. So as we see this Passover lamb, greater Moses, we recognize that what Jesus is doing is he's bringing us into a new exodus. And that's not a surprise. I mean, we know that that's true. Jesus brings us into a new, new exodus. And so Israel is, Israel is a demonstration, a template of what we all are looking forward to, right? Which is that all the nations will be freed from the oppression of the rulers, authorities, and the cosmic powers. That's what Jesus does. He brings us out. But what we have to recognize is that often we get a little distracted by this. We start saying, we've been saved. And so if the Israelites, in the same way, exited Egypt and said, woo, let's just chill out here. No, they're called to more, right? That's not where they stop. They don't get on the, on the other side of the border and go, oh, oh, all right, we're done. We're di- that's it. No, there's so much more that has to go, go forward, okay? So if we have a new Exodus, we have a new Moses, then we're looking for what is the new Sinai? Is there a new Sinai? Is there a new pouring of the covenant? So I'm going to read you a quote from Alistair Roberts. He's a commentator I really enjoy. At Mount Sinai, Israel was gathered together. God promised to make them into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. At Mount Sinai, the leader of the nation, Moses, ascended into God's presence and received the law which he gave to the people of Israel. Fire and God's presence came down upon the mountain. However, the people rebelled against God and Moses, and 3,000 of them were killed. In Acts 1 and 2, we see that Christ, the head of a new nation, ascends into heaven where he receives the Holy Spirit from the Father on the day of Pentecost, the day on which the law was given to the people, to Israel by God through Moses. Christ gives the Spirit to the church. At Pentecost, God made his people into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Fire in God's presence came down, not upon a mountain, but upon a people. Whereas the people in Exodus were not fit to come into God's presence, the Spirit comes to dwell in the church at Pentecost. Whereas 3,000 rebellious Israelites were killed at Sinai, 3,000 rebellious are brought to bow the knee to Christ at Pentecost. And so we see a truer and greater version of what we've been looking for, and we saw this, um, uh, Michael McDevitt, actually, when he was preaching on covenant, sort of showed us the imagery that as we move through the covenants, that they don't stand alone, but they are actually drawing upon each other, that we see a greater and greater revelation as we move through. So in the same way, we see this, this point where Pentecost becomes the new Sinai. There is more that is than what was before, but it is not completely dissimilar. We recognize parallels. So if you get to that point, and you say to yourself, well, that's interesting, so we've got a new Exodus, we've got a new Sinai. Going to get an invasion of the land. Going into the promised land. But if you really stop and think about that for a second, what does the genocide of at least six people groups have to do with not battling against flesh and blood? If we're called to parallel in some way what's happened in the Exodus, 
in Mount Sinai. And now we're supposed to invade the land. The parallel to the holy war on the land feels weird. So what are we supposed to do with that? And so, for instance, you know, um, there's this popular song on uh, Joy FM right now, 99.1, called Egypt, by Bethel Music and Corey Asbury. I'm screwed you a couple lines from it. You're the God who fights for me, Lord of every victory. Hallelujah, hallelujah. You have torn apart the sea. You have led me through the deep because you stepped into my Egypt and took me by the hand and you marched me out in freedom into the promised land. And now I will forget, not forget you. I'll sing of all you've done. Death is swallowed up forever by the fury of your love. So he gets it, right? He gets the fact that we've been brought out of Egypt but we just gloss over this promised land thing because it feels real awkward and real weird. What are we supposed to do with that? How is that supposed to be a template or a guide for what we're supposed to do? So with that being said, we're going to go back to Genesis 6. I know. Not again, right? I spent a lot of time on it last week. You've got to be kidding me, David. You're going to make us go back there again. Yes, yes, unfortunately, I am. Okay, so just to recap, one, this section of Genesis makes us feel extremely uncomfortable. That's okay. That doesn't mean that that we should ignore it, but that we should recognize what it says. It can still bother us even as we read through it. So that's part of this, okay? So we see an angelic rebellion that occurs, and we don't affirm it as something that's good. We don't. We, re- we don't look to that and go, wow, that's a great thing, but we want to recognize, does it have implications for the rest of the story of Scripture? So we've been talking in uh, um, our, our vision for the year. One of them is about discerning Scripture. And so what today I want to do for you is sort of look at the idea of as you read Scripture, don't read it as a bunch of separate things that stand alone. Read it as a story from beginning to end, how do they fit together? How does one thing that's said here suggest to you what something else is going to be coming? And this is really starts to open things up. When something's said, you go to yourself, oh, that's weird. I wonder what that's supposed to be about. Keep reading. If you're doing that with a regular book, in the same way. As you're reading a story, you're going to yourself, I wonder what that's supposed to be about. The author's going, well, do you remember what happened before? Are you paying attention to what happened before? Keep reading, stick with it, let's see how it goes. So for instance, Genesis 6, verse, verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now the part that sticks out, sticks out to, to me at least is the very first part. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards. Also afterwards. <laughs> The flood was supposed to have dealt with this problem. They're here again? We don't get a lot of details on exactly how. We're going to go with the, the shortest answer, which is in the same way it happened to be at the, in Genesis 6, it happens again, but we're not told. We're just told that they are, they are afterwards. And so we're going to ask the question as we're reading through the story, do you think that's going to come back and show up at all in the story? Do you think they hinted at that for a reason, or do you think they just put that in? Let's read the story. So as we're going through, the Nephilim, 
Um, and the oldest translations we have in an extra biblical text, which are also some of the oldest things that we have, where it helps us to in, you know, give us insight into how the words are used. Nephilim has, has been used to mean giants. There are people who get a little struggle with that. So in most of your Bibles, it actually just leaves it as Nephilim because there's some controversy there. I'm going to say it's giants, but don't worry. If you don't feel comfortable with that, we'll just read the story and see how it goes. So we're just continuing through the story, right? So we come off of the flood. We're thinking, okay, things are better. Are they? Next couple stories, but, you know, get to the point where you reach the Tower of Babel and things have gotten as bad as they were before. But we're forced to then ask the question, what are we going to do? Because God already said he wouldn't destroy the world again. How is he going to deal with this problem? There's got to be a solution to it. He must have a plan. He wouldn't have locked himself in without having some idea of what he's going to do. And so we get to see the nation scattered, right? And out of that, God calls Abraham. Abraham and his family then become the allotment or portion that is God's, right? So God takes them and he says, look, these, you're mine, you are my people, I am yours. And so there's this, now this commitment that God makes to Abraham and his family. And in that, as we're going through, there's the point where, you know, Abraham, he spends a good amount of time in the promised land, but he's constantly referring to the fact that he's a foreigner in the land. He's sojourning here. He's not, this is not his home He's still waiting for that, that promise to be fulfilled. And so Genesis 15, 13 through 16 puts it this way. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so the question then is left to us as we're looking at this is that there will be some way in which things have to progress to some level before Israel can take the land. We're not told how. We're not told what is that level. We're just told there's going to be a time period. We have to wait. And so then we, we come back again to this story we get a Moses. Moses brings them out of the land. They exit, ex- they exit. They come through the Red Sea. They come out of the Red Sea. They go, into, they go to Mount Sinai. They spend quite a bit of time there at Mount Sinai as God can, begins to shape them and mold them into the people that he wants them to be so they can be ready to face the challenges. And they come out of that and they go to invade the land. And so we'll go to the story of the, the spies, right? So the spies are sent out. And they're supposed to, they're supposed to ins- then let us know and sort of inspect, how are things? Okay, great. This is going to be good. What are, we do- what are we doing here with that? So Numbers 13, 25 to 33. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people in Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We come to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Now, if you're just reading that section, just right there, you get to this point. So what happens is, is, 
Um, if you're just reading, again, just read the story and pay attention to the way things are told. It makes a bunch of difference to how you notice what's, what's going on in the story. We're told where the Amalekites live. We're told where the Hittites live, where the Jebusites, the Amorites, all those type of things. But the, there's, a, there's a people group that are mentioned before. It just says, and the descendants of Anak are there, right? So like, it's making a distinction. There's these groups. We know where they all live. And then there's Anak. Huh. Weird. So we keep reading in that, that portion. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go at once and occupy it. For you are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had come up with him said, we are not able to go against the people, for they are stronger than we. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of, of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So again, if that was just... By itself, we didn't have Genesis 6 that says we're supposed to be expecting something like this. You might say, well, it's just a bad report. They were just whining. But there's no correction for this. There's clarification. And so as we keep pay paying attention, we're going to see Anak being emphasized over and over and over again in the story. So what we're going to say here is, if you give me that next slide. Yeah. Okay. So I, this is how I think. Okay. Anakim equals Nephilim. Okay. So as we hear these stories... We're going to just keep putting, saying to ourselves, just put the one in wherever those ones are stated, okay? So at this point then, now they have to wander. And they wander for 40 years because they didn't, they, they saw God move in such amazing ways in Egypt. But now all of a sudden, they don't trust him to do what he's already been doing up to this point. And so now they wander and they wander and then we come back. And the question is, okay, how is this going to be resolved? What are we going to do with this? So as they're getting ready, finally, finally, to come back into the land, they don't come back in the same way that they originally entered. In the, fir the first one, they were going to come from the south. God actually brings them around and walks them through in a different way. And they come in from the side, from the east, towards the west. And I'll, I'll have a map of that in a couple minutes, just to sort of reemphasize this. As they're doing this, we get to Deuteronomy 2, verse 8. And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with him, them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for possession, because I have given it to Ar, given Ar to the people of Lot for possession. The Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim. But the Moabites call them Emim. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them before they settled in the place, as Israel did to the land of the possession which the Lord gave to them. I know, this you know, when you read these type of things, you get like really to the point where you're just like, there's so many different words. Okay? I'm just going to, sh short is the Anakim are also regarded as Rephaim. So if you go to my next slide for me, you'll see, again, I sort of shortened everything for you. This is the shorthand, Okay? Anakim equals Raphaim equals Nephilim, okay? So when you see any of these words, you should be going, okay, they're the same thing. And then you get told, oh, you know, the so-and-so calls them the Emim, and the other ones call them this type of thing. If you want to keep track of all that, all you can. I just like to have the shorthand. That's, that's my easy way of trying to keep track of these things. This is how I think when I read things. Okay, so if we go just a little bit farther down. Oh, oh, and just recap here. Moab has already started to do 
some battle against these Anakim, right? The Rephaim have been the ones. And so if we remember, there is a, uh, um, Abraham's family has been called to do something. And so here we already see Abraham's relatives have started to do something. They're already acting in this way. And so as we continue down, we'll see even more of that. Deuteronomy 2, verses 19, and going on from there. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give, them, give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for possession. It is also counted as the land of the Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzimim. If a people great and many and tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as did the people of Esau who live in Seir, where he destroyed the Horites before them and they dispossessed and settled in the place even to this day. As for the Avim, who lived in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftarim, who came from Kaftor, destroyed them and settled in their place. Whew, right? Okay, let's do a map because this is way easier at this point. Okay, so um, the red line here becomes the, the initial um, way that the spies explore the land. They start in the south and they move up through the promised land. If you'll see, you have Edom, sort of dead center at the bottom. As you're moving sort of up and to the right, you get Moab. And then to the far right and to the middle, uh, slightly up, you get Ammon. I know the colors are not great. I'm sorry. But you get this distinction where it's like Edom, Moab, and Ammon have already started to reclaim the land. And all of, them keep tell- we, all of them keep emphasizing this point. They all are dealing with these Anakim. It doesn't tell you about the other people they dealt with. It keeps saying, look, there are people, they drove out. Who are those people? They're these people, which are also these people, which are also these people, which are Nephilim. Let's just simplify it, okay? So that's the, the point is, is, as we're even looking at the story, they've already started to do this. So God's like, you don't need to do it here. You don't get this land. Someone's already done it for you. And so you're moving on. But the weird thing is at the very end of that portion, it tells you the Kaftarim did something. And you're like, who in the world are the Kaftarims? And why are they doing this? Because they're not any of these people that we, we recognize. And the answer is, if you actually read, um, hold on, in Jeremiah, you actually get a point where it tells you the Kaftarites are also known as the Philistines. Ah, that's interesting. So here the Philistines have actually been participating in some of this warfare. Our relationship with the Philistines got a lot more complicated, didn't it? We dislike them. They're just troublemakers. Or maybe they're doing something else? So here we are. We're at this point where we're getting ready to go in, and they've been told, you, can't do, you, 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 don't get, um, you don't get the area where Edom is. You don't get the area where Moab is. You don't get the area where Ammon is. Okay? You've got to keep going. So God says, all right, let's, I'm going to bring you through sight. Um, through the Amorite territory. And so you can see that right next here to the Dead Sea, slightly to the right-hand side up. The Amorites are in that area. And God says, I'm going to bring you there. And Moses goes, okay. And so he asks Sihon, hey, can I, can I just pass through? No, you absolutely can't. And so they fight. And I, I, would, I would unpack that one, but it takes a little bit. So we're just going to go on to the next guy. The next guy they meet is Og, and that's the next slide up. It's easier to see. Um, Og is the, just above Ammon. He's that territory there. And it's told us in, in Deuteronomy 3 that they come in to, to Og and they're going to battle against him. And it says that Og is one, the last of the Rephaim in the area. And you're like, oh, okay. 
So here we are, and we're starting, you know, Ammon, Moab, and Edom have already done their part, but there's still some left. And so God's like, hey, look, I'm not going to just unload on you and a whole nation of these people to deal with, so I'm going to give you a small group to start with. And so he deals with, they deal with Og to start. Now we're starting to feel more, like a little bit more sense of why bring it this route versus say just come in from the bottom. He, God is so patient, right, with us. If, he, if we need to be growed, grown and matured, he's willing to do so. And we see that constantly through scripture. He doesn't just, well, you just screwed up. No, he, there, there are repercussions for disobedience, but God is so faithful to constantly work with us, mature us, and work where we are and meet us where we are. And so in the same way, we see this, you know, in this case, which is he doesn't just say, well, f- you know, you didn't do it the first time. I'm bringing you in the same way. No, like they should have learned in Exodus and at Mount Sinai. They should have, yes, but they didn't. And so God doesn't say, well, that's it. No, he brings them back. And this time he brings them in a different route. And he says, fine, let's start here. We'll start small. We'll fight with this group. Then we'll move on. And so Deuteronomy 3.11 says, for only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. And it, if even multiple times as you read through, Og, Og keeps getting referenced as you go through Deuteronomy, sometimes in the Psalms type of thing. And you ask, why is Og so important to the story? Because he fe- feels like a side character. Maybe he becomes a little bit more significant now. So here we are, we're at the point where we've gone, we're, get, we're standing at the edge. We're ready to go into the land. We've seen Abraham's relatives and one other group seem to have already been doing some of what we, what we know Israel has been called to do. And so we're going to go in. And so we just want to remind ourselves a couple of the qualifications that we've already been told as we're getting ready to go in the land. And one of them is in Deuteronomy 20. It, it says, when you're going to go into these cities, there's certain cities you're going to come to, if they're not of these groups, you offer them peace first. Okay? And then there's other ones that says, devote to destruction which is a weird term, and someone, you want, I can provide you books on this. I'm not going to waste, I'm not going to make you fall asleep, hopefully, on this part. There is a lot dedicated to specifically how these terms are used, but basically, devoted to destruction is a weird one, because devote normally is something around offering. It's something you offer to God. So something about what they're doing is like an offering, which is weird to think about. And so people have spent a lot of time looking at, as you read through the stories, and each of the time the conquest happens, what are these words and who is it that it's associated with? And the consistent theme is is the fact that those places they devote to destruction are specifically associated with the Anakim. It's not just anybody. It's a specific group. God is not just saying, whole hog, anybody who's in here, wipe them out, I'm done with them. No, it is a specific people because they aren't images of God. And this is important to understand why this matters, right? If we don't recognize what Genesis 6 says, when we come to to this portion, we're going, why in the world are we eradicating whole people groups? The answer is this, because they're not part of God's creation. They're actually somebody else's creation. They're never supposed to be there in the first place. It is because of rebellion by angels that we have this point where we get to, okay? So we're not saying that that means that they... um, they had some like a passport and you just, you know, yeah, oh, yeah, you, you're good. Obviously, there's going to be some, some, some deaths along the way that are not part of that, okay? But if they're, they're dwelling in this land, the idea is, is you get wiped out if you're associated with this group. 
So Deuteronomy 9, 1 to 3, I think even brings us again, you know, just trying to like loop back through this a couple different times to hear this. Verses 1 through 3. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in and dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. City is great and fortified up to heaven. A people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes before you as a consuming fire is the Lord you got, your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you will drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. As you can see here, they're, again, they're just being, it's being re-emphasized. If you don't knew, know who we're going in to fight, let's be clear about this. There are multiple people groups that we're going into, but the reason we're focused here is on one specific people group. We're eradicating them. Is it ironic that every time that God's people are someplace, there is, there is um, oppression, there is resistance? It's almost like we're in some type of battle. And so every single time, no matter where we go, I mean, in Egypt, how are we going to eradicate the Israelites? Well, let's kill all the males. <laughs> Everywhere we go through the story, there's always someone trying to eradicate the the line that is supposed to carry things forward. And so in the same way, we get to the promised land and we're like, okay, here's the promised land. But it's not just a walk in the park. You get to just walk in. No, there's work that's involved. You have to come into it. So I'm not going to spend much time, really any time on the actual invasion itself. Um, what I want to actually look at is, is Joshua 11:21 to 23. This is, this is the end when it's telling us like, okay, so we've done all this. Here's the recap for you. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. You stop right there, you're like, they did it. Good work. Good job, boys. You've done your job. And then the next verse, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain so Joshua took the whole land to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it to an inheritance of Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. So you get that verse in the very end portion of, of 22. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdad did some remain. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So this is starting to click, right? We're reading the book as a story, and when we read the book as a story, all of a sudden we go, hey, I hope that doesn't come back to haunt me. I hope that doesn't come back to haunt us. They did what they were supposed to. Yeah, I don't know. So you keep moving forward um, at that point, and you get to 1 Samuel 17. And we get told about a giant from Gath. And all of a sudden, we go, hey, you know, we could treat this as just a, an, a random event This completely just popped out of nowhere. We had no idea this was coming. Or if you're reading the book as a story, you're going, well, of course it's going to expect it. I'm paying attention. I, I, really, I really, really worked hard, and I didn't fall asleep during all the list of names. Yes! All right, I made it through. I even made myself a cheat card with all the equal signs so I could remember all of them. All right, here we go. Okay, so here we are, and, and we, we meet... We meet David and Goliath, and we get the story. Yeah, I'm sorry, yeah, go, go back. That, that, was my, that was my favorite slide. I hope that doesn't come back to haunt me. <laughs> um, 
So here we are. Okay, so what I, what I want to lay out here as we, we think about the story of David and Goliath is that this story, the way it's told, it actually sets it up as um, the, David is the image of God. He's the one who truly gets what image of God looks like. And we get the thing that we've, we, we didn't get in Genesis 3, right? Which is the snake comes and there's, there's a, an issue. How are we going to resolve it? And so humanity's told there's a relationship between humans and animals. That relationship is humans are supposed to rule over animals, not the other way around. So when humanity chooses to submit to the snake, they, they relinquish their spot. They choose to give up what they've been given to become less than they are. So we're looking for that, indi- that individual who finally says, no, I know who I am. I know what I've been called to, and I'm going to get it right, not because of me, but because I know who I trust in. So then all of a sudden, as you start to look at this, it starts to stick a little bit. So Goliath is described in a variety of ways. One, we're told he's a giant. So we're like, okay, all right, that's interesting. Then we get to verse five, and it says he's wearing what often is, he's armed and with a coat of mail. You know, honestly, just the whole story of, anytime you're reading one of these stories, how many details are you really told about the people? Like what they look like? Very little, right? So when all of a sudden you get to Goliath and it slows down and it tells you about every little thing he's wearing, you're going, okay. I'm not going to unpack all of it, but I just want to specifically focus on this portion. In in verse 5, it says he wears a coat of mail. What the word mail actually means is scales. So he's wearing bronze scales all over himself. Reminding us again of the bronze snake also in, in that we've seen as we were wandering in the desert, tying us back also to the snake that we first fed. This is just, just one, of the, one of the ways we sort of see this, right? Okay, So we see this, this idea. David says, hey, I want to fight Goliath. And they're like, oh, David, you can't do that. You don't know what you're doing. And David says, no, no, I do. I know my place in relationship to creation. I've defeated the bear and the lion. I'm not subservient to the animals. I rule over them. And so they say, okay, all right, fine. Let's dress you up, sort of like Goliath. And no, 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 no. No, misses the point, right? We're not dressing up like Goliath. That's not who we're called to be. We're called to be something else. Goliath threatens him and says, I'm going to feed you to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David says, no, you're not. That's not my place. It's the wrong orientation, Goliath. You've got it completely wrong. I am not something subservient to that. I'm made to be more than that. uh, David in verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, whom you have defied. He recognizes the right orientation. Unlike Adam and Eve, he recognizes how he's supposed to be facing off against this. And so to end the scenario, we get David and he defeats Goliath and it even, like it emphasizes this, which again, if you're paying a story, you're going, what? why didn't he even make the point? He is now laying face down on the ground in the dirt, reminding us of Genesis 3, right? Here he is, snakes in the dirt, face in the ground. You see it, okay? So in so many different ways, we're being told that this, this Philistine is not just some big dude He is the problem we've been facing from the beginning. 
there is a rebellion that has occurred. And David, in this story, nails it, literally. And deals with it. And then we even move farther into the story, right? And so we get all of David's mighty men. Samuel, 2 Samuel 21, 15 to 22. Then there was war against the Philistines in Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary, and Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giant, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. Again, the little references back to Sir Goliath. But Ab- Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this there was war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elohen, the son of Jer, or Agim, and the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was a war again at Gath, and there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And also he was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants and Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. And so what wasn't accomplished in the invasion of the promised land is now resolved. Like we get to the point where we no longer hear about that then from the rest of the time on. It's been fixed. It took a long time because the people didn't do it right the first time. But God raised up, you know, raised up someone who would. And he does deal with the problem. He does resolve it. So just to recap, what is the function of the invasion? We're, they're supposed to take the promised land. In the process, though, they run across Nephilim that they're supposed to deal with. And so the coexistence with the spawn of angelic beings and the images of God isn't, isn't possible, right? Like that's not what God designed. And so you have to eradicate that thing that is not supposed to be part of creation, not supposed to be part of God's um, very existence, okay? Like this, this is his creation, not others. And so we're removing those things that are not part of that. We resolve that. So this still, that helps us sort of bring a, a little bit more focus into what are we supposed to be doing? How does this matter, right? So this invasion, this eradication isn't just anything. It's a, it's a type of holy war that is spiritual warfare, but on a physical scale. So why are we called to something more? And that's really what I want to sort of focus on here. Ephesians 6, 10 to 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In the same way that Sinai qualifies Israel to be ready to act and move in this way, Pentecost makes us qualified to do what we're called to do now. And we can recognize that by reading verses like Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And if we don't know who the sons of God are in the Old Testament, then we go, well, I don't understand. Like, okay, so like we're, 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 we're adopted. Yes, absolutely. And there's a bigger claim here, right? Like that that's huge. And with that, is recognizing that sons of God is always heavenly beings in the Old Testament. And all of a sudden, we're being told, you are heavenly beings. You're not less human. You've been raised to the point where you are, you are seated in heavenly places. Okay? And so why 
are we allowed and invited to participate in this warfare at all is because of what Pentecost did for us. It makes us who we are and who we are now is not just little dirt bags. We're so much more than that. We are the place where creation and God's life-giving spirit are put together. Galatians 3, 25 and 26. For now, the faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. So this claim of sons of God is both a qualification. You're not qualified to even participate in a battle that Israel couldn't partake in. They could take, partake only in the physical because they weren't qualified to approach God's space. If you can't approach God's space, you can't participate in this. You can because of what Christ did and because of the spirit poured out inside of you. You can now are qualified to do this, which then also gives you clarification on your identity. You're not just a dirt bag. You're not just creation. You are the place where God's spirit and creation overlap. And so you've been invited into more because of who you're qualified to be. And it brings out your vocation. You are called to reclaim the land. Okay? Now, I pulled a couple strings here, and uh, I had a quote from a book I really wanted to use. And uh, I happen to know the guy, and he agreed to come in and read it for us. Yes, what is it? snapped the, the commander. As the general continued to stammer, the commander's gruffness and impatience wore thin. Well, speak up. I don't have all day. Yes, Commander. Sorry, sir. It's just that it's just that there's something very odd about this invasion. Like what? barked the Commander, becoming more irritated by the moment. I'm not certain exactly how to explain it, sir, he paused and added. We've detected absolutely no communication among the Liberating Army, and as they're moving about, there seems to be no coordination in their, to their efforts. The General paused again just briefly. It's almost as though... Yes, General Gravitz, get to the point. This may sound crazy, sir, but it's almost as though none of the platoons knows the others are there. General Gravitz looked at the floor and waited for the inevitable rebuke, but it never came. Finally, the general looked up at the commander. He was staring out the window and smiling. General, this is the greatest news ever, the commander nearly shouted. If each platoon thinks they are the entire army, they can't win, maybe ever. At the very least, we'll hold our ground much longer than I could have anticipated. The commander looked at his watch. At this time tomorrow, I want a full report of their actions and everything we know. Get me as much intel as possible. Yes, sir, Commander, General Gravitz left in high spirits. He had fully expected to be upbraided, but instead he received a commendation of sorts. The next day, the general returned with a large tablet to show the commander what they had found. Good afternoon, Commander. In his usual gruff tone, the commander responded, You seem upbeat today. I am, sir. I have some good news I think you'll find particularly interesting. Our stealthy reconnaissance teams have given us lots of information. Proceed. Well, first the bad news. The weapons and the military prowess of the Liberating Army seem far superior to ours, and I do mean far superior. They have dealt our side a few what I would call serious blows. Many of our captives have been liberated already, but those losses have been few and far between. If there were any coordinating efforts at all on their part, I don't think this war would last very long. That's what you're happy about today, General Gravitz? No, sir. Er, yes, sir. I, don't you see, sir? 
The general looked nervous. That's the point. There's apparently no organization to anything they do. It's like they're just out there on their own. For example, sir, since their initial attack, we've been able to inflict plenty of casualties on them, and because they don't seem to be communicating, the platoons, the platoons that we have identified as medical units have not given any aid at all. None. Zero. So their wounded are receiving almost no attention or care. Some are still out there on the battlefield suffering. The commander smiled. But there's more, sir. General Gravitz scrolled down his tablet. The troops on the front line seem to be running out of supplies, ammunition, food, basic necessities. But here's the kicker, sir. There are plenty of troops farther back who seem to be having parties because they have a glut of supplies. But without any communication or coordinating efforts, the less engaged platoons appear to be consuming as surplus what those at the front would see as essentials. The commander's smile widened. But here's my favorite part, sir. General Gra Gravitz seemed downright giddy. Friendly fire. Friendly fire, General? asked the commander. Yes, sir. Friendly fire. Again, with none of the platoons talking to each other, they don't know who is on their side. So they just shoot. They've ta taken out almost as many of their own troops as we have, sir. This may be a far better scenario than we could have ever hoped for. As long as they stay divided, they can't possibly win, laughed the commander. This war could go on indefinitely. So you can see how this, this call to, to, to fight, to to, to reclaim the land. As you can just, I, the, by the way, that book was uh, called Body Broken. It's, it's my, his most recent book and uh, recommend it to, to all of you. Really good. He makes this point, which is like this war could go on indefinitely. And so that's, that's one of the things I think that we have to recognize is that as we're fighting this battle, um, as the story said, it, it's not that we don't, our weapons aren't powerful. Like we're far superior to anything we face. We gotta work together, right? Right? So like, this is about, what, what's the mission or mission goal of the enemy at this point? They know they're defeated. Prolong the battle as long as possible. Convince you not to fight. Convince you to fight each other. Convince you to not fight well. To get distracted about where you're supposed to be, what you're called to. And so we're called in such a way that we're supposed to be united, working together and focused in a specific way, working with the spirit towards a common goal. That's the, that's the call for us. In the same way as the people go into the land, if they'd all just sort of wandered around and done their own thing, they'd still be at it probably at this point or not, you know? It, would, it wouldn't have been just one little territory, it'd be even more. And so in the same way we're called to go, to reclaim the land, and so we're working with the spirit and we're working with each other in such a way that we no longer let the enemy continually distract us and keep the, the, the end of this war inevitably just drawn out, but that there will be a day when it comes to an end. And then I'll open up for questions before I close. Are there any Ah, yes. So there are different interpretations on this. The one I think makes the most sense is the fact that David's eradication at the end seems to address the issue. It is, it is done. Plus the other giants were also killed. Yes, exactly. Yeah. David and his men finished the job that were supposed to be done in the first place. Okay. So you're, you were called to something greater than just getting out of Egypt. You're called to actively participate in the war against the enemy. And it's not because of something you've done, it's because of what Christ did. 
and because of the spirit in you that qualifies you to do that. And so as we work with the spirit, we are faithfully fighting and pushing back against the enemy, bringing a shrink, constant shrinking to his kingdom and a growth to the kingdom of God. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for that confidence that we know that even as we look out, sometimes it can feel like that's not true, but we know that it is, which is that your kingdom is growing and that you are working through us to bring that about. Lord, I pray that you will continue to allow us to be more faithful to do that, working together, working with your spirit, working unified in such a way that things aren't inevitably drawn out, but are brought to a close. In your name, amen.